So I was watching an NFL football game over the weekend, and it was funny to watch the different perspectives with different things that took place in the game, because as, as in any game, you have controversial calls. Did someone actually catch the ball? Was it a fumble? Did they step out of bounds? Did they actually cross the goal line? And it's funny to watch because, of course, the referee is going to get his perspective on the matter and, and be looking at it and making a judgment based on the rules and what they can see. But you also have two NFL teams that are standing on the sidelines looking at this huge jumbotron, and they're all watching the exact same thing, but they both, te both teams come up with a different perspective. And it has everything to do with what's in their heart, I believe, because obviously both teams want to win, so they interpret what's on the screen according to the desired outcome. Well, the referee's supposed to be the mediator of that and hopefully not be biased one way or another, but he definitely has a perspective on it as well. Well, I find it amazing that in the Bible we see Jesus with a perspective on things, but then even the disciples following with him might have had a different perspective when they see the same thing. And so here's what we're looking at in, the, in these next few weeks in our study of the Bible together is that we can see the field the same way that God sees it, because when he sees it, he tells us to look up, look at, it, look at the field. It's white already unto harvest, but the way God looks at it is not a piece of real estate, but as people. And he sees the field as ministry and people who need to hear the gospel, but we often see trouble. We see lostness. We see maybe difficult moments to engage, and we're not sure what even to do with all those things. And so our perspective may not be the same as Jesus. So the whole purpose of our study right now is that we might get our hearts tuned into God so that our eyes will see the same thing God sees. Now, a good example of this would be in the Apostle Paul's life. After having come to Christ and having done a lot of ministry, and as a missionary going from city to city and preaching the gospel, he obviously received a lot of pushback. He was someone who loved the Lord. As a matter of fact, that was what compelled him to continue to go forward. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he makes this statement in verse 14. He said, it's for the love of Christ compels or constrains me. He said, that's what compels us to, because we judge that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So here's his charge. My... Because of his heart for God, his love for God, it's what drove his feet in his ministry and his life to go in the direction it did. So even when opposition came and things were so difficult and he was arrested and beaten and stoned and all these other issues that happened in his life, well, because of the love of God, when he saw lost people, he had to do something about that. He had to minister there. That is why, like when he went to, the, when he went to Athens, he was waiting for his travel companions Timothy and Silas to show up. And so as a ministry team, they can do things the way they have been doing for a while. But when he got there, he saw the city wholly given unto idolatry. And as a result of seeing that, he went in and, be, and began immediately to preach in the marketplace and in the synagogues. But ministry needed to happen here because he saw lostness. He saw people without hope. He saw people that were worshiping false idols and and they had no peace in their life. There's no joy, no security of salvation in their life, and they're grasping for straws in every direction. Because his heart was tuned to the Lord's, and the love of God is what constrained or compelled him, he could see things the same way that the Lord sees things. Now today I want to do a study with you in Revelation chapter 3 of a church that received a letter from the Lord, and this letter is challenging them because of their vision. This vision is directly connected to the heart. 
And so I pray that we would receive today what God has for us from this in Revelation chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 14, and it's the letter to the church of Laodicea. Now, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you have seven letters to seven different churches, and these were real, literal churches that would have received the word of the Lord this way. Now, we can also not only see what was written to those churches literally, but we can also understand that these letters can represent for us church ages. And so you can see uh, throughout history how each one of these letters might represent a chunk of time in church history since the resurrection of Christ. So for example, uh, the letter that precedes this one, the church to the Church of Philadelphia, the, the Brotherly Love Church, they were the church that was unique because they had a door open that no man can shut. Well, if you look at it in the chunk of time of history, the time of the Reformation, it was the time when the Word of God was able to freely go that the common man would get the Word in, their, in his own language. And this was a time a, a door was open that no man could shut. A time of great missions and ministry that took place all over the globe and people going to, to other lands because they just wanted everyone to hear the great news of Jesus because now they had the word in their own hand, in their own language. Well, the church of Laodicea has a little different report. So you pick up from about maybe the late 1800s to where we are today and you see what's happening in this ch church age throughout the lens of the church of Laodicea. Revelation 3.14, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, I find it interesting that this the church of Laodicea means civil rights or rights of the people. And so the church of Laodicea is very focused on everyone's rights, and we might even say human rights, so it doesn't matter whether you're looking through the lens of North American church or the global church. This is a focus that everyone seems to have is on people's rights. The rights will sometimes take precedence up over the top of the Word of God because often we would rather make sure someone's rights are not being violated than whether or not they'll spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. And so here's what happens. Jesus uses very strategic names to help the church see his perspective. He is the amen. He is the amen which is the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen. It's literally a name for God to call him the amen because he is the promise fulfilled, he is the true, he is the righteous, and you would say the so be it, the promise of God, yes. That is the way it's described. So even this concept of an amen or a women, it doesn't even make sense in light of the meaning of the word because it means literally so be it or truth, um, as to say of the truth of God. He also described himself as the faithful and true witness in contrast to the compromising church of Laodicea. But he also calls himself the beginning of the creation of God, the, the sovereign creator who, when in light of the church of Laodicea that's consumed with wanting to make sure they're comfortable and things are convenient, um, well, the sovereign God often allows us to experience things in our lives that are very difficult. And so the Laodicean church throws their hands up and says, oh, well, if it's bad, it must not be from God. And God, a good God, would never allow people to suffer. And so the Laodicean church is very apt to charge God with wrongdoing because he might allow Christian people to suffer at, in, in, this, in this world. And so I want to take a look here for a moment of what is the word, the counsel that Jesus is going to give here or his perspective. He said in verse 15, I know your works. 
that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. And he said, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So you get two different perspectives. The church of Laodicea consumed with their rights, the rights of the people. They're the church that is consumed with wanting to be comfortable. They want to be, con everything must be convenient. It needs to be culturally sensitive. There's, there's aspects of compromise that are always taking place. And so when you watch this play out in church, what does this actually become? It becomes the consumer-driven church. That I, the comforts that we must always have when we come into a place of it's got to sound a certain way, it's got to smell a certain way, it's got to be comfortable a certain way, and needs to be close enough to my home that I can get there very quickly, you know, 12 minutes one way or another, it's going to make or break me in my life of whether I can follow this or not. We are a consumer-driven ministry, our church, and ministries that often come out of this because we want everyone to be comfortable and to really just enjoy the experience because we are an experience-driven culture. You know, the experiences of life that I've had that have allowed me to go other places in the world that gives me a different perspective on this is, you know, when you, when you go to a place where people don't have access to the Word, don't have access to the amount of information of the Bible that we have here, and people that just want someone to come and teach them how to study the Bible or how to articulate a particular area of the Word. And I've been places where men literally traveled by bus, by train, by foot, by donkey, by motorcycle for 20 and 30 hours just to come to a place where there would be someone there that would teach them the Word of God and how to study the Word of God so they can be more effective in going back to their churches and proclaiming the full counsel of the Word of God. And these guys show up and their clothes are often tattered, their shoes are wore out, they're hungry, not worried the least bit about food, they're not worried a little bit about what they look like or how they got there or how they're going to get home again. None of that makes a dime's worth of difference because the one thing they want is they want the Word of God. And they're willing to do whatever it takes to get it. Well, that's not the Laodicean church because if it's even slightly inconvenient, well, that must not be of God and I don't, I'm not going to go there, I'm not going to do that. When we measure out these days about whether or not we're willing to go to the uttermost to go proclaim the gospel, which we have been commissioned by Jesus to do with all power from heaven and earth, all, all authority given through Christ, now what happens? We measure on, is it safe enough? Is the water clean enough? What will I eat when I get there? How well will I sleep? And what time will I get home? And we're going to measure it by the experience of whether we'll ever really engage it or not, not really looking through the lens that, well, there's thousands or even millions of people who live there that live like this every single day, but, but we won't. We won't even want to do that for two weeks. Why is that? Because the Laodicean church has the right, believing by right, that we have the right to be, com be comfortable. We have the right to uh, convenience. The, we have the right to need. We need to make sure we're always culturally sensitive. And quite frankly, it sounds very consumer-driven. In fact, if you listen to us often when people are discussing what church they might want to go to or considering a ministry, it sounds like they're shopping for a, uh, a new gym to go work out in. They're interested in, in the environment, um, the temperature, the music, um, the training, um, and obviously all of the equipment and all the accessories and all the programs that might be available for me and my kids and the, the rest of my family. 
And so there's all the, the vernacular is the same. And obviously, if, if I don't accomplish the goals in the gym that I thought I was going to accomplish, then obviously the gym didn't meet my needs, therefore I must find a new gym. Well, that's the layout of C in church. And Jesus, here's what Jesus has to say about that. He said, you're not cold, you're not hot. Now, Jesus does a lot of play on words with it in light of the circumstances because Laodicea is very near uh, the city of Colossae, which is known for its cold, pure drinking water. It's also very near Hyopolis, which is known for its hot springs. So it's between two cities that are known, one for cold and one for hot, but they're in the middle. They're just lukewarm. And Jesus said this lukewarmness makes him want to vomit. Yeah, I think of it. Yeah, you go to any coffee shop and they have hot coffee and they have cold iced coffee. You never see lukewarm coffee or room temperature coffee on the menu. Why? Because it makes you sick. Um, there's no place for that. And so here's what happens. God now calls out, or Jesus says this, because you are neither hot or cold, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. It's not pleasant to the Lord. It doesn't please him. And it reminds me of like standing in front of a, a bonfire. I just did this the other day, burning brush on one of the real cold days. When I was standing in front of the fire, I obviously was close enough to the heat to feel the warmth of it, but I was also close enough to the cold to feel the cold of it. So it's like this in the world where I'm close enough to the word of God to stay hot or to stay a little bit warm, but I'm also close enough to the world that it, to stay cold. Well, this idea of hot and cold, we see this play out in the, in the New Testament. When, remember when, the, when Jesus resurrected, he went on a walk with a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus? Well, when they were on this road, in Luke 24, 32, they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? See, there was something about being close to the word of God and in fellowship with the word that made their heart on fire. By contrast, the cold heart, Matthew 24, says, because, And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Coldness often comes from our distance from the word because we just set it aside, and it becomes our Sunday tool for church, maybe, but, but it doesn't govern our lives. And see, when the word of God becomes the very food that we eat and the drink that we drink, and it's, the, it's what literally heats up our heart because God's heart it just burns within us. I want to know more word. I want to walk in it. I want to honor him. And so what happens then, my heart becomes transformed to be like the Lord's. And then my eyes see what he sees. Because their heart is lukewarm, it has caused them to have spiritual blindness. So Jesus tells them this, because you're lukewarm, you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. That's what you say. And do not know that you're wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The total contrast. The church says, we're fine. We're doing great. But Jesus says, I see it completely the opposite. When, when the church says they're rich, they measure it maybe by the bank account. They may measure it by the size of facility. They may measure it by physical, by physical resources. But Jesus says, that, that's not my measuring stick at all. He said, I, I say you're poor because he measures the spiritual bank account and well, he sees the spiritual account might be empty because there's no proclamation of the gospel. There's no zeal to want to go to the uttermost to share the word of God in other places. And so he said, I see it as poor. I see it as miserable. 
He said, not only that, but there's a, a blindness that's taken place here because your heart's lonely, lukewarm, so it's impacted your eyes. You don't see it the way I see, but they say that we see fine. They see themselves as clothed perfectly, and he says, no, 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 no. I, I see it the exact opposite. Now watch the play on words. Laodicea is known for its black, shiny wool. So you try to imagine looking into this church inside of a building and all these people that are all enjoying life together and talking with each other and everything's going on in there. They're wearing their black shiny wool and life is good. You would look at it and say, man, that's, that's, a, that's a blessed church. Everything good's going on there. But Jesus looks at that and sees it completely the opposite because from a spiritual perspective, he sees them as naked. He, and so he's going to give them counsel on what to do about their nakedness. Interesting to note, too, that the church of La or the city of Laodicea was famous for its eye salve. It was an ointment that you would apply to your eyes if you had eye trouble. Well, certainly they did have eye trouble because they, they're not seeing the things that the Lord sees. And so here's his counsel. In verse 18, he said, I counsel you to buy from me to notice, buy from me, not buy from the world gold, but he said, buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich in white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Now, what does he tell him? Buy from me gold. What's the gold of Jesus? Well, the gold of Jesus is seen in a couple of places. First Peter 1 teaches that it's my faith being tested in the fire it's through sufferings and trials and tribulations where I'm in fellowship with Jesus in trial and my faith is being, is being tested and it comes forth as pure gold. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we see that gold, silver, and precious stones are, are the ministry that is built upon the foundation of Christ. So it's dealing with the souls of men and the, the ministry of the word. Those are the things that last forever. The souls of men and the word of God, these things last forever. And so he said, you build upon the foundation of Christ with that. That's like gold. Buy from me that gold. And he said, now, in the, there's a day coming when fire is going to test all this and either you're going to have built on the foundation of Christ gold, silver, and precious stones, which can endure fire, or you're going to build with wood, hay, and straw that is consumed. So the measuring stick becomes is what happens to my life as a Christ follower, is it all just consumed in worldly things and gone? That's the Laodicean church. Or is it established into eternal things where I've now laid up my treasures in heaven where moth doesn't corrupt and thieves don't break in and steal? It's things that last forever. Well, now he also counsels to put on, to go get white garments. The white garments are seen in Revelation chapter 19 where we see and it says in verse 7, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. We are the bride of Christ. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is this. It's the righteous act of the saints. It's walking in the righteousness of God. It's doing the word of God. And so I'm going to be someone, a doer of the word, not just a hearer of the word. The Laodicean church has has close enough to the word to be warm, close enough to the world to be cold, and as a result, the righteous act of the saints, it's not present. And he says, I counsel you to go buy me the white garments. But he also said that you need to apply the eye salve. 
You think about this in the book of John when Jesus healed the blind man, he spit on the ground or even spit in the guy's eye. Think of it this way, Jesus needs to spit in your eye. Apply the eye salve. And here's what he told him in that case. He said, the blind man who can now see is in better shape than you who see, but you're actually blind. Why? Because the blind man who can now see by faith trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. But those guys in that spot that could actually still physically see are spiritually blind. He's telling the church of Laodicea, you need to apply that eye salve because you can't see. Why? Because your heart's only lukewarm. You can't see what God's doing. Well, Revelation 3.19, let's keep going. It said, here's his counsel. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. God brings in the hand of discipline as a good father. We learn this in Hebrews chapter 12. And because God brings in the hand of discipline, his counsel to us, be zealous and repent. See the direction that you're going is contrasting the way that God's going. Turn from that and go to the way of the Lord. That is what repentance is. It's a brokenness. It's the contrite spirit. It's, Lord, I have consumed my life with things. I have consumed my time with comforts, with carefulness, with convenience. And it, it, it drives my thought processes and I have become a consumer Christian. Lord, I am sorry. I confess that before you. Lord, I want to walk in your ways and I want to do whatever you tell me to do obediently with all my heart. That's what repentance might look like in light of Revelation 3.19. But here's the invitation from Jesus. The invitation is, behold, in verse 20, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and him with me. Now, this verse is often used as one to maybe preach the gospel that someone might open the door of their heart to Christ, but the, the context is not for that. The context is as to the church, the church of Laodicea, where Jesus is on the outside of the church and the church is inside doing whatever it is they do and Jesus is just knocking at the door. And his counsel is this, open any, if anyone, anyone, it's not that the whole church is going to open the door, probably not, because they're too busy solving all their, all their dilemmas and how they're going to spend the money for this and how we're going to decorate for that and they can't come up with a solution for that and so the guy knocking at the door is just making a lot of noise and is a lot of racket. Hush that. But if anyone would open the door, any individual, here's what he says. I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now you think about the fellowship with Jesus. Jesus is wanting to come in and sit down and abide and have genuine fellowship with you. Well, what does the fellowship of Christ look like? Well, we see the fellowship of the Lord is in suffering. And Paul, matter of fact, said that. He said, I, this is what is one thing he desired. I want to know the Lord Jesus Christ so well, I even want to fellowship with him in his sufferings. It's to, it's to fellowship with him in his mission, to be labors together in his field. So where he leads, I go. And the power of all authority is given to him in heaven and in earth. So wherever he leads, well, that's where I want to go. It's, it's fellowshipping with God and his word that I would drink in his truth and walk and align my life to match the written word of God. It's fellowshipping with him in prayer that I would be sensitive to the things that he's doing, that I would hear, that I would, my eye would be trained, my heart would be trained to, to be like God's. And he says then, to him who overcomes, well, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, and as I have also overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. Well, who's the overcomer? Well, the overcomer is this. And 1 John 5 said, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, 
our faith. The entire appeal of Jesus to the church of Laodicea is this. Walk by faith and not by sight. Because right now, what they do is what they can see physically. And they absorb how things are going to make me feel is most important. And I want to make sure everyone else feels well at the same time. Well, we may make everyone feel well, and I might feel well, but it may not change anyone's eternal destiny. This is, these are things that have really shaped and, and impacted my heart as God has allowed me to be a lot of different places on this planet that to do ministry with people, sometimes meeting a physical felt need is critical. To be able to communicate the gospel, sometimes I, it, it might be necessary to um, create goodwill by doing a good work so that I might be able to share the good news. That's true. But I have learned and I have done this where I created the goodwill by doing a good work but without the good news I had to get back in from it and realize, you know, if someone just has all the food and all the drink and the clothes and a better place to live than they had before but they don't have Jesus, I really haven't improved their circumstance other than to make them like me. Comfortable, more convenient, and more of a consumer than they were before. And Jesus' last counsel is this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's a matter of will we open our heart, will we open our ears to hear what Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, right here now, is saying to the church. Are you someone today that Jesus is knocking on the outside and you're the one that's going to open the door and say, Lord, I don't care what everybody else is doing. I don't care what every other church is doing. None of that makes any difference to me. I want to fellowship with you. I want to dine with you. I want to do life with you. I want to fellowship with you. Lord, I just want you. And maybe that's the invitation that Christ has made, that you're receiving that. May the, may the church open its ears may the, as the Spirit of God is speaking today, that we would open our ears to that. The counsel to the church of Laodicea, his first counsel was beginning with repentance. It's acknowledging that, Lord, I have become consumed with the things of this world. I pursue comforts, conveniences. I've become a consumer Christian. And instead of my focus being on, Lord, how can I please you today? The focus becomes, how can I please me? And if that also can please you, then that's okay. And God says, you know what? That really makes me sick. Because as we go back to what Paul said in the beginning, where his heart was, as he said this, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. And so the charge to Christ followers today is to live for him who died for you. And maybe today um, your perspective might shift, asking God to warm up your heart, that the, the word of God would burn within you, that your eye could see, and that our perspective would be the same as Jesus, so that when I see things, I see it the way he sees it. And so, you know, every day we're all watching news and a lot of things happening going on in this world. 
we're watching what happens when lost people do what lost people will do. When this is it, if this is all you have to look forward to is whatever happens in this chunk of years of life, this is it, then you've got to make the best of what you've got for these years. But if you're looking forward to eternity, you have everything to live for for the glory of God. And so here's what happens. My eye sees, and instead of taking sides over certain matters, instead of doing that, my side might be a perspective of the Lord's side that, boy, there's a, there's a great display of lostness. And as a Christ follower, I see a place where the gospel needs to prevail. And that needs to become my priority. May the Lord bless you and you have a great week serving him in his kingdom. And I pray he warms up your heart this week that it burns within you with the word.